Church, I invite you to draw your sword. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. I want to read in your hearing verses 1, 2, and 3. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 9. I want to begin at verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places, and they confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. It is one thing to rebuild God's city. It is something totally different to rebuild God's people. The book of Nehemiah is divided into two parts. In the first part, chapters 1 to 7, we find the description of the rebuilding of the city of God. In the second part, chapters 8 to 13, we find the description of the rebuilding of the people of God. It is one thing to meet physical needs. It is something else to meet spiritual needs. It is one thing to lay down slabs of concrete. It's another thing to raise up souls of faithfulness unto the Lord. And yet God had called Nehemiah to not only rebuild and refortify the city, but also to rebuild and refortify the lives of God's people. Therefore, it begs the question, how are God's people rebuilt? In three verses, I believe there are at least four characteristics. Number one, when God's people are rebuilt, we have a renewed awareness of personal sin. In verse one, the author tells us it was the 24th day of the same month. The Israelites gathered. They were fasting. They were wearing sackcloth. They had placed ashes on their foreheads. Their attire and their attitude represented a symbolic confession of their soul. They were aware of their sinfulness. The author tells us it was the 24th day of the same month. Back in Nehemiah chapter 8, we are told that on the first day of the seventh month, Nehemiah called a Bible conference. The seventh month does not correlate and correspond to the month of July on our calendar, but rather the seventh month on the Jewish calendar is more like January. It's the first month of the year, and on the first day of a brand new year, Nehemiah called a Bible conference. He invited the best preacher in town, Ezra, as the keynote preacher. The people gathered on that first day of a brand new year after they had completed the rebuilding of the wall and they clamored for the word of God. You may recall from last week that Ezra preached for six hours and ain't nobody looking at their watch. Everybody is engaged. Everybody is looking. Time is passing by and they're just saying, amen, preacher, give me some more of God's word. And they gathered and they heard the word of the Lord read to them, explained to them with illustration and application, and they desired the hungry, holy things of God. In that same month, we are told historically in a place like Leviticus chapter 16, 
that on the 10th day of the seventh month, the people of God always remembered Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was the one annual event that marked God's forgiveness of sin for that year, staving off his wrath upon the people for another 365 days. The high priest would always get the best lamb, a perfect lamb, one without spot, blemish, or defect. And in a very symbolic way, the high priest would transfer all the sins of Israel upon that sacrificed animal. Before the lamb was slain, the high priest would place his hands on the head of that animal, thereby signifying the transfer of not only his sin, but all the sin of God's people for the past year. And it's now placed squarely upon that perfect lamb. That lamb is then executed. And the blood of that lamb atones for the sin of God's people for the past year. And by doing that, the people of God could live at peace with the Lord, knowing that even though they were sinful, their sin had been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and that the wrath of God, which should be meted out against them, was pushed off another 365 days until they came once again to Yom Kippur. Now that Day of Atonement is a foreshadowing of Christ. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The death of Jesus does not happen every year. It happened once and for all time. And his blood covers not just the sins of the people of Israel, but his blood covers the sins of all who will believe upon him. So the Day of Atonement was a significant day in the life of Israel. That's why it always happened in the first month of their calendar year, which we call the seventh month. So on the seventh month, Nehemiah had led in a Bible conference, and they had observed the Day of Atonement. But also later in Leviticus, we're given instruction that during that seventh month, from the 15th day to the 23rd day, the people of God were to gather and worship for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three high holy holidays, with Passover and Pentecost being the other two. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was special in that uh, that was the time when they would gather to remember how God had provided perfectly for all of their ancestors as he led them out of Egyptian captivity into the Promised Land. So they remembered that God is a God of great provision. He led their forefathers, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When they were hungry, he rained down manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, they were able to drink uh, out of water that came from a rock. And even though they traveled so 40 years, their sandals never wore out and their clothing was never moth-eaten. God provided everything that they needed, the food that sustained, sustained them, and even the clothes and the fabric on their bodies. He provided everything, and every year, God's people would gather for the Feast of Tabernacles. Literally, they would construct a, a hut, a tent, a tabernacle. They would live there in that uh, tabernacle for a week, and they would remember and they would celebrate the great provision of God. For as God was faithful in the past, he's still faithful in this moment. In this same month, think about it. These people of Nehemiah chapter 9, they had had a great Bible conference, tremendous preaching of God's word. They had observed the Day of Atonement, and they had just finished observing the Feast of Tabernacles. 
This was a spectacular three-week stretch. We are told at the end of Nehemiah chapter 8 that not since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, had the Israelites observed this feast like this. There was such great joy. Now let's put that in context. There are about a thousand years that span and separate Joshua from Nehemiah. What Nehemiah is saying is that it's been a long time since God's people worshiped like this. It's been a long time since we had a revival like this. It has been a mighty long time, nearly a thousand years since God's people had worshiped like this. This was a tremendous three-week period of time. Our passage begins on the 24th day of the same month. This is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. And when they come on the 24th day to assemble, their feasting had give way to fasting. Their shouts were now sobs. Their celebration had been transformed into crying. They had sackcloth on their bodies. Their foreheads sprinkled with dust. All of this a symbol of the awareness of their sin. The people gathered after having a Bible conference, having the Day of Atonement, having the Feast of Tabernacles, and they understood that when God rebuilds his people, there is a renewed awareness of personal sin. They gathered by their actions. They were saying what David said. Surely I was sinful. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. By their actions, they're saying what Isaiah spoke. Woe to me, I am undone, I am unglued. From a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And by their actions, they are, are, are speaking the words that the Apostle Paul will write in his Romans correspondence in Romans chapter 7. When he says, what a wretched man that I am. What I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, that's what I keep on doing. These individuals were aware of their personal sin. It was C.S. Lewis who said the Christian's nostrils ought to be continually attentive to the cesspool of the soul. Do you smell that? It's kind of a foul stench, isn't it? Smells a little stagnant. It smells stale, doesn't it? It smells, uh, it smells like refuse, doesn't it? It's the cesspool of the soul. What you're smelling is not your neighbor. You may think it's your neighbor, but it's not. It, it, it's you. What I'm smelling is not coming from the pew, it's coming from the pulpit. Do you smell it? C.S. Lewis was exactly right, that the Christian's nostrils ought to be continuously attentive to the cesspool of the soul. When you and I are rebuilt for God's glory, 
we become profoundly aware of personal sin. It always starts with the acknowledgement that we are sinful from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, from the inside out. We are completely and utterly sinful. We do not come to God with pride and arrogance. We come to him acknowledging our sin. So friends, what is that smell in your nostrils? Is it the sin of arrogance or greed or envy or anger or lust or materialism, just to name a few? What is that foul stench? Surely you smell it. Surely you can, you, 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 you sense it, don't you? I mean, it's the foul stench of the cesspool of your soul. May your nostrils continuously be attentive to the cesspool of your soul. When God rebuilds his people, we have a renewed awareness of sin. Secondly, when God's people are rebuilt, we respond with brokenhearted confession. Verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from the pagans and they confessed their sins. They separated and stood to confess. They separated themselves, not because they were snobs, but because God had called them to be saints. Separated, separated out from the world to be distinct, to be different than the world. Separated out. The New Testament word for the church is ecclesia. It literally means the called out ones. As God's people, we're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to be different than the world. We are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. We have a different mindset than the world. We have a different priority set than the world. We think about, we think about things differently. We do things differently. We, our allegiance is to a different person than the world. We are different. And so we come together every seven days and we are called apart. We are set apart. We gather here. And part of what we do is we confess. Now, don't misunderstand me. The church that gathers for worship, it is for the redeemed and it's also for the reprobate. So let saint and sinner gather at the same place on the same day. But the church, the body of believers, the redeemed of the Lord, the called out ones, we are those who believe that there is a God and he sent Jesus down the cross and by the Holy Spirit's power, Jesus was raised from the dead. And we are redeemed. By God's power. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, God's people separated themselves from the foreigners, separated themselves from the pagans, and they stood and they confessed. They confessed their sin, I would say, in brokenhearted confession. You know they're brokenhearted because of their attire, you know they're brokenhearted because of their attitude. They are broken because of their sin. And they honestly confess it to the Lord. When I think about what Nehemiah chapter 9 looks like, my mind races to a story told by Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Let me stop you right there. The people in the crowd would have said, I know how this story is going to end. Jesus is going to praise the Pharisee and he is going to ridicule the tax collector. After all, that makes a whole lot of sense because in that day, the Pharisee represented the religious elite, the good guys, 
The tax collector was the reprobate. He was a crook of his own countrymen. He would be the one who would be put in his place. So before Jesus got to the second and third sentence of the story, the people already thought, I know how this one goes. Jesus is going to praise the Pharisee. He's going to ridicule the tax collector. Ah, but Jesus said that the Pharisee stood and he prayed about himself. The text can also be translated, he prayed to himself. That's always a dangerous thing. He prayed about himself. He prayed to himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I tithe and I give a tenth of all that I get and I fast twice a week. Now, friend, i got to be honest with you. That far too many times in my life, I've got to put down the little Pharisee that resides inside of me. Maybe you have a little Pharisee that resides inside of you. If you've been in church very long, it, it, it is very tempting to give God your resume of righteousness. It's very tempting to think that somehow by your actions, you have garnered his grace. And by somehow, your activity can merit his majesty and his favor upon your life. Oh, my friends, whenever that Pharisee rears his ugly head, you've got to put him down. You've got to put him in his place. I would say you've got to slaughter him because there's no place for a Pharisee in the heart and mind of a child of God. And you and I have to put down the Pharisee. But the Pharisee prayed about himself. He prayed to himself. But the tax collector, the tax collector stood in the corner. His head downcast, could not even lift his eyes to heaven. And he simply beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's only a seven-word prayer. It's really quite simple, easy to memorize. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And even though it's simple, it is quite spectacular. Because Jesus said that that man, not the Pharisee, went home justified in the sight of God. That that man... The crook, that man, the reprobate, that man, because he came in brokenhearted confession. He was honest, he was humble. He said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said, God welcomes sinners. But those who think themselves not to be sinful, a.k.a. a Pharisee, he went home in wickedness, not righteousness. I wonder... What has happened to all the sinners? What's happened to sin? In the American church, it would seem as if sinners don't come through the door. It would seem as if that sin is something that we have mastered, that none of us have a problem with it. We're so sophisticated. We're so educated. We're intellectual. And it would seem to me that, that, that we no longer really need to talk about sin because there's no real sinners in the pew. Whatever happened to sin? Whatever happened to sinners? We have disorders. We have syndromes. We have diseases. We have flaws. We might even have identities. We, we have some 
choices. We have some lifestyles. We, we have some things that the Bible has consistently called sin, but today we don't call it sin. I wonder, friend, whatever happened to sin? Whatever happened to calling sin, sin, and a sinner, a sinner? Because if a painter paints and a sailor sails and a teacher teaches, a sinner sins. So I wonder, whatever happened to sin? I contend that Christianity is the only religion in human history that has accurately identified the problem of humanity. It's sin. For all of us have sinned. And we continually fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only does Christianity accurately identify the problem of humanity, which is sin, but it also sufficiently satisfies the condemnation that should be meted out against you and meted out against me because it's meted out against Jesus. In other words, somebody's got to pay somebody's got to pay for your sin and mine. It's either going to be you for all of eternity in a very real place called hell, or by faith, you're going to believe that Jesus paid it all, and all to him you owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You're going to believe by faith that Jesus paid the sin debt. He didn't know because you have a sin debt you cannot pay. And Jesus paid for it sufficiently and eternally. His dead body was placed in the ground, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. So Christianity is the only religion that identifies the problem of humanity and provides the remedy for righteousness. It is only in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ that a sinner can be declared innocent. It is only Christianity that still acknowledges that you have a sin problem and I have a sin problem. And it's a big problem, but it's not too big for our great God. When you and I are rebuilt for God's glory, there is a renewed awareness of personal sin. And we respond in brokenhearted confession where we, like the tax collector, we just simply say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a third characteristic in Nehemiah chapter 9, that when God's people are rebuilt, we return to the word of God. We return to the word of God. Verse 3, the people assembled, and for a quarter of the day, they read the scripture. For a quarter of the day. They stood reading the scripture. Now there are some mathematicians in the house. And you quickly think to yourself, well, a quarter of a day has to be six hours. And you would be right with that mathematics. Uh, but this phrase, quarter of a day, really means a quarter of the daytime. The daytime was considered 12 hours. The nighttime was considered 12 hours. So a quarter of the day is probably three hours. I appreciate your zeal to say that it's six hours. After all, Ezra preached for six hours and everybody was shouting amen, so I have no problem with that. But to be accurate to the text, probably a quarter of a day is not six hours, but three hours. Even still, God's people stood and they read the scripture for three hours. 
When was the last time you read the Bible for three hours in one sitting? When was the last time you sat down to read the Bible? And, and, and you started in one spot and you just kept reading and reading and reading. You looked up, not one hour or two hours, but three hours had come and gone. When was the last time you sat down to read the Bible for three hours? If the research at Lifeway is correct, and I have no reason to doubt it, the research from Lifeway tells us that good Christian people, people like yourself, people like you, people like me, that the vast majority of us, if we read the Bible at all, we read it for less than 15 minutes a day. Now, there's 23% of those surveyed who said that when they sit down to read, there's the caveat, when they sit down to read, they read for an hour. But that was the longest amount of time that was given. So I think that, that there were some of us good Baptist saints who knew we were taking a survey for Lifeway and said, i got to make myself look good. So when I sit down to read the Bible, I read for an hour at a time. The reality is that the vast majority of us, if we read the Bible at all, we read it for no more than 15 minutes a day. Now don't misunderstand me. 15 minutes is better than no minutes. A scrap of Scripture is strong enough to sustain you. If you can hold on to a scrap of scripture, that scrap can sustain you for the day. But I wonder, when was the last time you just poured yourself over the word and allowed the word to pour over you? And I wonder, when was the last time you spent three hours reading the Bible? When was the last time you spent three hours allowing the Bible to read you? The survey from Lifeway asked the question, Why don't you read the Bible more? It's not a confrontational question. I mean, if you read it for 15 minutes, why don't you read it for 30 minutes? If you read it for 30 minutes, why not 45? If you read it for an hour, why not you read it for an hour and a half? Why don't you read the Bible more? Here are the top two answers. Number one, I do not prioritize the reading of the Bible in my life. Number two, I don't have time to read the Bible. This is not coming from secular society. This is coming from the saved. This is coming from the redeemed. This is coming from the righteous that are, that are, that are right there in the pews. These, this is coming from people like you and like me. That the reason we don't read our Bible is because we don't prioritize it as important in our life. And we just don't have time to do it. Oh, friend, I'm telling myself when I'm telling you. We don't have time not to read the Bible. Oh, there have been seasons of my life when I was living out that survey. Shame on me, right? Because for some reason I had too much to do, too many places to go, too many irons in the fire. I didn't prioritize it. don't have the time to do it. There are pockets of seasons of time when I tragically resemble that far too much. And I dare say that's true for me. It's probably true for you. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, he's given us the recipe of how to be rebuilt for God's glory. And, and when you become aware of your sinfulness and when you respond in brokenhearted confession, there is naturally and out of necessity a return to the word of God. There's a return to it. We, we, we've got to read it. And when we read it, we discover who God is. The majority of Nehemiah chapter 9 is a prayer. 
And if you were to read the 32-verse prayer, what you would discover is that much of that prayer is a history lesson. Where the, the one doing the praying, he just tells God, God, this is what you've done in the past. It's a great way to pray. Just to remind God. You're not really reminding God. You're reminding yourself of what God has done. So it doesn't take you very long in that prayer to discover that, that he starts with Abraham. Oh God, you called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. Tells the story of Abraham. It, it leads down to the great Exodus event. And how God powerfully, miraculously liberated the children of Israel from Egyptian captivity. There was the Red Sea in front of them and God parted the waters. They crossed on dry ground. He was leading them uh, through the desert into the promised land. That, that God led Moses up Mount Sinai, gave the, 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 the mediator the very word of the Lord etched with the finger of God on tablets of stone. Oh, Moses stayed up there too long, according to the people, so they made a calf, a golden calf, and they worshipped it. And God should have, he should have annihilated them right there, but he was so merciful. He was so compassionate. He kept leading them. He made them a way out of no way, and they entered the promised land. They were able to enjoy houses that they did not build. Vineyards they did not plant. Wells. They did not dig. This is the mighty mercy of God. You get down to verse 28, verse 31. You'll find where the, the author of, of the prayer just simply says that, that once we rested in the promised land, we started doing evil again. The sin cycle is vicious. We cry out to God. He forgives us. He draws us close to him. He cascades his grace upon us. And, and we stay there for a while, but we don't remain there. And we drift off back into sin. We got into the promised land. And when we were able to rest from our enemies, we started doing evil again. Verse 31, he simply says, You acted faithfully, even though we acted wrongly. If you were to read the 32-verse prayer, you'd find there's one characteristic of God that's repeated over and over, and it's his compassion. The word compassion is mentioned five times. Verse 17, verse 19, verse 27, verse 28, verse 31. On five occasions, the one doing the praying says, ours is a God who is merciful. He is compassionate. You know, when you return to the word of God, you, you discover who God is. And he's compassionate, friend. He's got a soft spot when it comes to you. He wants you to be drawn close to him. He wants for him to be important in your life. He has a soft spot when it comes to you. And he should have killed you, but he kept you. He should have slaughtered you, but he spared you. God has been so merciful and so kind and so compassionate because that's who God is. Don't let anybody bring me that junk where it says the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. That is theological baloney because in the Bible, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's always been compassionate. Old Testament, New Testament, God is compassionate towards those who turn back to him. When God rebuilds his people, it begins, it starts with an awareness of sin. Brokenhearted confession, a return to the word of God. 
But there's a fourth and final characteristic. That when God's people are rebuilt, we have a renewal of worship. Once again, I'm still in verse 3. They assembled, and for a quarter of a day, they read Scripture. And for a quarter of the day, they prayed and confessed, and they worshiped the Lord their God. When you're aware of your sin, and you understand the only remedy is God's salvation, you respond with brokenhearted confession. You return to his word and discover that he is a God of compassion. The only appropriate response you have left to do is worship. There are a lot of great definitions of worship, but I like what Paul Basden said. That worship is our response to the goodness and the greatness of God. That's worship. Our response to the goodness of God. And our response to the greatness of God. And I just wonder, is there anybody who could testify today that God is good? Is there anybody who could testify that that God is great? That there's something good about the God of the Bible, something great about the God of the Bible, that if we had open mic night, which we're not, but if I pass around a microphone, there'd be numerous people who could say, yes, let me testify. This is how good God is. This is how great God is. God made a way when there was no way. God helped me when I was helpless. God gave me hope in the midst of hopelessness. God is so good to me. Oh, friend, when you return to his word, there is a renewal of worship because you understand just how good and how great God is. I think that now is the time for worship. I think now is the time for us to regather. I think now is the time for us to reassemble. I think now is the time for us to re-engage into the life and work of the church. I realize that We are coming out of a global pandemic. Some of you may argue with me saying, no, we're going to be boomerang right back into a global pandemic. We can discuss that. But I think that now is a time to re-engage. I'm going to ask those that are on the other side of that camera that if if you are, are able to come and join us, We would love for you to be able to be here. I know that some of you are providentially hindered because of sickness or because of distance. But if you're in this general area and if you're able to come, I want to encourage you to come because when you're not here, you are missed. There's something about being in God's house on God's day with God's people. Can I get an amen? I mean, there's something about worship that is taught, but it's also caught because there's something about it that when I see you worship, it inspires my worship. There's something about us being in the room when it happens. And that's not just a Hamilton phrase, that's a God phrase. That we need to be in the room where it happens. Because this is a place where God shows up and does something remarkable. Oh, friend, I just invite you. Let's reassemble, let's re-engage, let's regather. Let us come back together like never before. Because now is a time to worship. God is rebuilding his people. He is rebuilding you and me. Sam was an inquisitive six-year-old boy. He was in worship with his mother, and he was bored to tears. The preacher, 
kept going on and on and on. Young Sam looked around the sanctuary in the hopes of finding something that would capture his attention. And then all of a sudden, there it was. It was a plaque on the wall of the sanctuary. He'd never seen that before. He'd been in the sanctuary numerous times, but for some reason, young Sam had never noticed that plaque. He studied the plaque. The plaque was outlined in gold. It was, looked like the American flag. And, and on the stars and stripes of that American flag, there were various names that were etched on it. It's a beautiful plaque. He poked his mom's skirt. He said, hey, mom, what's that? Now, his mother knew that he was very inquisitive. That if she didn't answer him, he would just keep asking her over and over again. But she wanted an economy of words. Not many words because she didn't want to interrupt anybody else's worship and she did not want to get the attention of the pastor and somehow get him off track. So she just tried to respond in a, in, in a very calm way, a, a concise way. And she just said, Sam, that's the names of the people that we know who have died in the service. His eyes got as big as silver dollars. He said, Mom, Mom, one more question. Did they die on the first service or the second service? <laughs> Worship is not something that you have to endure. Worship is something that you just need to enjoy. Why? Because God is good. And God is great. And because of his goodness and because of his greatness, we respond to him in worship. And when we are rebuilt for God's glory, there is a renewal of, of, of personal awareness of sin. We, we respond with brokenhearted confession. We return to the word of God. And there is a renewed emphasis upon the worship of the Lord where we say, you know, I just can't help it. I just can't help but to praise the Lord. I just can't help but to get happy because God has been so good to me. God has been so helpful to me. God has brought me through some things. God has been there every point of need in my life. God has helped me. Friends, you've got to forgive me, but sometimes I can't uh, better express my worship than in some of the songs that I was raised upon in that little church. And when I think about the goodness and the greatness of God, I just can't help but say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. But oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. Now bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come and God has brought me safe thus far and safe he'll lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh friend let it be said of you that worship just erupts inside of you when you think about the goodness of God and the greatness of God Almighty. Because God's in the business of rebuilding his people right here, right now, today. God is in the business 
of rebuilding you for his glory. You say, how's that start? It starts with an awareness of your personal sin. Do you smell the cesspool of your soul? There's no amount of lotion. There's no oil. There's no cologne. There's no perfume that can cover up that foul stench. It's only the grace of God that can cover that foul stench. That smell of refuse can be replaced with the sweet smell of righteousness. Oh, friend, it all begins with an awareness of your sin. And respond with open-hearted confession, broken-hearted confession. Return to the Word of God. When you do, you'll find that God is compassionate towards you. And you'll have a renewed awareness and sense of worship. You'll worship like never before. Because God is in the business of remaking you and rebuilding you. I'll close with this. You can be as close to God as you want to be. The person who's most responsible for your closeness with the Lord is the person seated on the right in between the person on the right and on the left of you. It's you, friend. You can be as close to God as you want to be. Today, be aware of your sin. Confess it with brokenness. Return to his word and renew your worship of God Almighty. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that the moment the first note is struck, that person will call out to you in faith. They'll come down to the aisle, take a pastor by the hand. Father, for those of us who are redeemed, maybe you have made us aware of sin in our life, and today we need to come and confess it. Maybe we're negligent towards your word, negligent towards your work. Help us, O oh Lord. Maybe, maybe we don't respond to you in appropriate ways in worship. Help us, oh God. Please, Lord, please, rebuild. Rebuild your, your city. Rebuild your people for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.